in the 2003 SDCF symposium panel entitled, Now What? Artists Tisa Chang, Clinton Turner Davis, Scott Elliott, Diane Paulus, Sabrina Peck, and Neil Pepe discussed the challenges and opportunities for artistic leaders. Hello, I'm SDC Director Daniel Sullivan, and you are listening to Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by SDCF and the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. The last session, we talked, it was, it was a bunch of funders and art scholars uh, talking about the challenges facing artistic leaders and, and the choices they make. Basically, um, you know, basically with concerns of economics uh, and opportunities on their mind. We're going to take a lot of those questions. I'm going to lob them sort of the same questions to you, but I'm going to, this time we're going to look at it from an artistic point of view. And again, we have another amazing panel. So I'm going to run down the line, starting all the way on my right, far right. Clinton Turner Davis, Diane Paulus, Sabrina Pett, Neil Pepe, Scott Elliott, our keynote, he's back. Tisa Chang, an amazing panel. So thank you and welcome. Um, we were talking about, uh, as I said in the last session, uh, about the struggles, the challenges, the opportunities, or lack thereof, uh, that artistic leaders are facing. One, uh, one of the, Zelda Fishhandler said something uh, in recent American Theater Magazine that I just thought was so beautiful, and it sort of informed the last discussion, but I'm gonna read it now. Uh, in Zelda's article, she said, the future grows out of the present, the present seeds up from the past, the choices we make today will describe the theater we will have tomorrow. So that is sort of, that's what we're here today to discuss. Um, when theater grows, the very elements that generate that growth, often financial from ticket income, ticket sales and fundraising, need to be reproduced each year to help the theater sustain itself. That's fine, that's okay. Theaters become though, seem to be becoming more and more dependent on the box office and on their fundraising and marketing departments. Uh, and often that may, so we were talking about how they may choose to do a small play. Vicki Reese from Schubert Foundation said she has seen an alarming trend, and the word she was alarming, in the last year of the amount of theaters doing one person plays. I guess, assuming, you know, presumably based on economic factors. So theaters are choosing to do small plays rather than undermine their fundraising or box office needs. So what I'd like to throw out to the group from your perspective as directors and artistic directors, is this healthy? How does that affect the art? There's, uh, as Zelda also said, there needs to be a balance, always. A healthy organization will have a balance. So what are you noticing in your work around the country or in your work here in New York, Neil at, at, at Atlantic or Scott at New Group, or Tisa at Pan Asian, or around the country for the directors on the panel who work at theaters all over the country? What do you guys notice? What are your thoughts? What are your comments? We'll just sort of start with a general question. 
if that's getting the ball rolling. Can, can I start off? Because I, I, I think before we even enter, uh, uh, that I can answer about art and economics, I just want to remind everyone that many, many of the theaters um, founded in the 70s, the artist-driven and culture-specific uh, and the innovative um, theater companies were impelled largely by political and philosophical idealism, um, very much um, uh, influenced by the civil rights movement, by the uh, struggle for independence by so many uh, developing countries in um, Africa and Asia. So given that kind of personal drive and commitment, that absolutely shaped then our choices and our course of evolution. Pan is not just Pan-Asian in the 70s, but my colleagues theaters such as Intar and, and uh, New Federal Theater and so many others, uh, Ping Chong. Uh, and I think that that has helped us always to stay uh, uh, on track uh, in terms of, the, uh, uh, of our decisions. And having to balance it all, I mean, I'm still running Pan-Asian after 25 years. And people constantly say, gee, how do you, and we actually pay people. And the union, I mean, working on an actor's equity contract has always been very, very important to us. Paying uh, de designers and directors have always, that's just been a very important uh, priority for us. And so balance, I think it is, has always been that kind of idealistic drive and what Ben called core values that has actually made it very clear for us how the evolution will take place. Um, and I, I think now, uh, as for one person shows uh, economics, I think there's no question that that, that we have to be cognizant of, uh, of that. Um, and there's just got to be inventive new ways. And I don't want to, uh, for us, it has absolutely been reaching out to a lot of uh, colleagues and partners and very unusual collaborations or, or um, for us, we did start um, a symposium, uh, a, a, col a collaboration with Intar and Federal Theater for instance, five years ago for marketing, for perhaps doing new work, uh, this kind of cross-fertilization of our audiences and our staffing. So that was one of the ways that we chose um, to sort of address the needs of the 21st century. That's very interesting. We should talk a little bit more about that, too. Before I do, though, does anybody else want to jump in? Scott, New Group, or Neil, Atlantic Theater, Sabrina, Diane? Well, I'll just say that, uh, well, since I've been doing it, I haven't been doing it 25 years, but uh, the economics have changed drastically from just when I've been doing it to now, obviously, because of, you know, the economy in general, right? Uh, and, you know, theater has, you know, theater has must continue. And so you have to change with the times, in a way. That's the way I look at it. And... So if you have to do plays for a while with smaller casts, you're still doing theater, so it's a wonderful thing. And so if it's a one-person show, what's alarming about it as long as it's good? You know, or as long as there's a passion you know, you know, behind it or a reason to do it. Um, so yeah, I, I, I say that I do look, I am looking now, I mean I haven't in the past, we always do, we, we always do large cast plays, but definitely I'm being pushed by my financial and to think about doing things that maybe are a little smaller or kind of balancing it out a little bit. And I'm totally cool with doing that because it, the theater must continue. And that's the way that I, you know, I think responsibly make decisions. I won't do anything if I think it's bad. You know, that, that I never did. But you know, there are a lot of wonderful one solo artists out there. 
who are work, you know who, who are working it. And the interesting thing about just kind of the elep- you know the evolution of the art is that in the seventies and the eighties when solo art was so wonderful, then it went out of fashion. You know, people were kind of like, oh, solo shows, solo shows. Now all of a sudden there's kind of a rebirth of it just in our time, which is kind of interesting also because it just reflects the time. Yeah, what I would say is it sounds like the question is, can you stick to your mission in times that are economically difficult? And uh, and I think, I think, yeah, it can be a problem if you're forced to do a one-person show, like Scott said, if you don't want to. If you do want it, fine. Um, but uh, that's the sort of probably the reinventing that we're talking about. And I think the hard thing, we've done a lot of big shows. Did a 14 character show with Butter and Eggman. We did, we've done Cider House Rules at 21. And the question is, I mean, is how do you raise money for those shows in this day and age? And how dependent are you on box office? Well, well, you are dependent on box office a lot. So it becomes, on the business side, much more of a challenge and a struggle to figure out how you were going to not only do the work you want to do, but make sure people, number one, want to see it, and number two, know about it, and uh, will come in, whether they come in for discounted uh, prices or full price tickets. And uh, because I'm, I'm interested to know, in terms of the 70s, because I know I didn't grow up in a generation that got big grants. And uh, we've always relied a lot on uh, earned income. And it would be really nice to get huge grants, because then maybe you could do a show you said, this is such a risky show, but you know what, I don't care if I sell a lot of tickets, because I've got the money. Well, it's hard to do that now. You have to care if you sell tickets, without a doubt. Um, and so to me, it's the key is not compromising your mission and being really good business people. But knowing how to, com- I think just piggyback on that, Neil, is that I think it's not just selling tickets, but knowing who you are speaking to, what that particular play is wants to, who do you want to reach. And there, for instance, the legacy codes that we're going to do in the fall is inspired by the Glenn case. So it's all about not only national, American national security and physics, but DNA and genome. And, and so we said, hey, this could open up a whole new, perhaps, possibility in terms of who you want to target, the kinds of groups, as well as the funders that may perhaps be more interested. So these are just little creative ways that we all have to be just just lighter on our feet um, in, in terms of saying where, how do you, those large grants, there are still large grants available, you know, and multi-year grants, uh, you know. But, but I think it's a real trap if you just rely on one source of funding. You have to be diversified. The move to smaller task productions for me is extremely troubling for a number of reasons. Sometimes my vision cannot be carried by one person. Many of the playwrights with whom I work and develop scripts, their visions encompass a larger community of greater diversity of voices. I think we're doing our audiences a tremendous disservice when we limit those voices. In the previous panel and throughout, 
the funding and artistic communities in the last 10 years, the new phrase of marketplace forces and market-driven economy, economies, has now come into parlance. And it begs the question, what market? Who's doing the shopping? And why? And when I ask myself those questions, and I look at my market, I find too often that the goods and services, art, that I want to purchase, that I want to include in my personal universe, are not represented, are silenced. And it has caused me to find sometimes drastic, for some of my friends, shocking alternatives to realize that vision, that specific vision, and to hear those voices. I think with the new market forces, it calls for a different model, a different kind of collaboration across the board, a different look at what our institutions, not so much what they are, though that is part of the discussion, but more importantly, what we want them to be and to whom we want them to speak and how long and in what ways we want them to exist. And those kinds of real questions are being asked, but too, too often we really are not being honest with ourselves and we dance around the answers. We dance around the realities of whether you really do want someone who looks differently than you sitting in the seat next to you. We dance around the real answer to the types of plays we really want on our stages, in our institutions. And we end up paying lip service to get the grant to continue to do the same tired, hackneyed work that has been served in the marketplace for such a long period of time. And it's become a very frustrating treadmill for me at times. Sometimes Sisyphean in its kind of scope. A deja been there before reality. Not only in um, the funding arena, which I've been working in since 79, in the performing arena since I've been doing since then, and as a director working professionally for a number of years. So it's, I think the question really has to do with honesty, who we are, and we have to ask ourselves those generalistic questions. Who we are, where, who, what, and why, how. Sometimes. And until we really get to those honest discussions with the regenerations, as, as Stephanie, who I love very much, in the room, 
with the people in our specific neighborhoods, we will continue to roll the stone up the hill and have it roll down on us, flatten us, <laughs> destroy us as an arts entity, as a culture. And it's, a, it's, it's the view for me at times is very troubling. I found um, somewhat of an oasis in aligning myself with educational institutions because there is a, there's a different kind of honesty. <coughs> there many times is more money on a fund, uh, a greater, uh, greater resources. And it has allowed me to get those ideas and artistic impulses that I had had on the back burner for years finally produced. Well, I'm sorry. That's it. I was gonna, building on what Clint just said, that's one of the reasons why I'm so happy we have the panel we have here today because I think every one of these artists has found a way to do work that is a reflection of them and their experiences and what they want to do. And I'd love to hear how, whether it's and these collaborations, I'd love to hear more about the collaborations that Pan-Asian's doing with, with uh, INTAR and, and uh, New Federal. Diane, you had an interesting, I mean, the Donkey Show was a fabulous story about an very unorthodox collaboration. Um, <coughs> talked about it with women at the helm. Women at the helm. I was so inspired by that. Sabrina, Scott, Neil. I mean, these are all artists who have found a way, as, as Lynn has, to put their vision on the stage and represent themselves. And I'm hoping that their examples could serve as inspiration and models for the group that we have here today. Does that make sense to you guys? So does anybody want to want to take the ball? from the perspective of an institution, but I can speak from the perspective of a single artist. Um, and for me, the road has very much been creative problem solving about how to get your work out there in, in combination with what you and, and Ben were talking about core values. Um, and there's a, just a variety of models, and Diane, you're going to be able to speak to too, about um, thinking outside of the box and outside of existing um, institutions. Um, when Cornerstone Theatre Company was started in 86 um, with classmates of mine from college, the desire was to make theatre relevant to people who don't ordinarily see theatre. And we went on the road in rural America and did really epic, hard-hitting adaptations of classic plays in places like North Theatre, Kansas, and Marmot, North Dakota. And at the time, what we were really interested in was not only how can we make theater relevant to, to people who normally aren't in the, aren't the, the typical theater-going audiences, but um, what can we learn about these plays by setting the Oresteia on an Indian reservation where Buzz, the tribal chairman, plays Agamemnon, and where there is clan and tribal issues you know, to, to look at. So for us, it was very much about um, questions that we were learning to, to answer and and, um, and the means for how to do that were just sort of like, what do we have available to us? Well, 
you know, there's a van and there's like a small branch in Virginia and we can travel out there and create this, this piece of theater. And I, I was thinking on my way over here that it might be because my mother is a sculptor where she creates everything whole cloth out of nothing. But my standards are so high in terms of, and my expectations are that everything will have to be created and new from scratch. That, you know, it wasn't until I was an adult that I even felt that using a script wasn't cheating. <laughs> because the idea was that you had to work with the original writer and composer and, you know, community. So um, that model of collaborating with the community, <coughs> there, residing there, and creating work there, um, was, a, was a very successful uh, model for Cornerstone. And, and um, I encourage you all to, there's a book that just came out called Cornerstone by Sonia Kupinets. And I really encourage you to read it because it's really inspiring about how, you know, how this company got created and, and developed its work. And, and they're now thriving in Los Angeles doing incredibly extraordinary work with, with communities in Los Angeles and bridging communities. Um, I think my core values are really about um, not only reaching out to um, audience, to, to build audiences, but really telling the stories that don't get told, and often doing that in collaboration with the stories of Zar. So um, I've been working, you know, with Bosnian Muslim refugees in a refugee camp that was based on a grant, a single grant. Then uh, the, the um, academic model that Ben talked about has been really helpful for me. Um, being an artist in residence at Duke and being able to create a piece with tobacco workers in Durham, where I get to learn about what it's like to be, um, you know, in the South and growing up in the South and particular economic and political struggles that are in, in those communities. Um, and also do that in terms of training students about my approach and bring them into the community and, and, and you know, educating them about what exists outside the Ivy Walls. And, and had the privilege of also being able to do that um, at NYU um, as a visiting artist, creating a piece called Common Green, Common Ground with community gardeners from Brooklyn, East Village, South Bronx, and Harlem. And that was a community garden, you know, that piece was set in community gardens and toured around community gardens in New York. Um, when people ask, like, how do we get people through the doors of the theater and, you know, how do we build these audiences and audiences are dwindling? And I say those audiences are out there. And sometimes it means you have to go meet them. And you have to go create a theater out of a welding shop, you know, and, and gather your friends together. And, um, one thing that really inspired me yesterday when I was watching Theater Me Too, was very inspiring um, yesterday, was the community that they had built with each other. And this idea that it's out of community that you can sometimes accomplish these things that you know as a lone as a lone wolf or as a director or creator or choreographer you, you don't feel that you have the power to achieve and um, I know that Diane talked about that not that too project for hundred and, and how what a great base having a, a, a collective of people who are like minded can be in moving mountains. I mean I I feel like all the the issues that have come up um, ring so true, and there's no question that there is a problem. It feels like there's an oppression. I have to say, for me as an artist, that has been um, a galvanizing force. It's been, you know, kicking and saying, there's got to be another way to do this. And for me, um, it's about the audience. And I, I as your director, the, the primary force that drives the work I do is the audience. I'm thinking about the audience, and I will 
um, look for the most vibrant environment and situation in which to make contact with an audience. And I have found through my experience so far that sometimes that doesn't happen in the traditional theater um, for any number of reasons. Um, I can only offer one anecdote, uh, <coughs> which is interesting. It's sort of a counterpart to the one-person show. Um, I was doing a show uh, called Swimming with Watermelons, which show that I created with my company was about the um, American occupation of Japan and it was developed with four women in, in my group and uh, we did it in the Berkshires Music Theater Group commissioned it and produced it and then it went to the Vineyard and it was a, a lovely little show it, it uh, was well received <coughs> and the audiences that came out to see it really really enjoyed it um, and we hit a point in our Vineyard run where um, we we're facing closing or extending in the theater, the vineyard, like some theaters in New York, you know, they're on a lease, like you pay a dollar a year, you know, so the theater's there, it's not like you're paying a weekly rent, and um, we were facing closing, um, because the sales weren't reflecting what it would need to keep the show running, so the, the company members, actually, you know, we all got together and they said, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just perform it, you know, we're actors, we'll... What are we going to do? Go home and not do the show for the next three weeks? It was a three-week extension. We can we can continue to perform. There is available. You know, we'll waive our salary, whatever. We just want to keep doing the play. We're enjoying it. We want to reach more audience. So there's a situation where you have actors who are voluntarily saying we'll waive our salary and couldn't keep the play open because there were union issues and the cost of the stage manager and two spot ups or whatever was prohibitive and it was crazy to me because the theater went dark for the next three weeks. There was nothing in it. Yeah. It's a theater. You know, it's meant to be active. And, um, you know, there we were on 15th Street between um, Union Square East and, and Irving. Great real estate. And I just couldn't understand why the connection wasn't happening. Clearly wasn't happening. And, you know, as I think for all artists, you, you swing on the pendulum. You go from one experience to sort of sends you, you know, you have to function that way, it sends you into the next, and for me, in terms of a model, I just have been turning more and more to um, a, a model, which I'll, I'll just put out there, I, I did the donkey show, and it was again a show developed, um, you know, in a little theater on the Lower East Side, and I, I can only in very short say, we were doing several shows, uh, you know, no money, the whole the whole thing that we all know about. And this show was getting audience. And we were doing another show that was not. And we said, you know, something is happening with this show. So we, we put our uh, faith and time and um, energy into that one. And um, it ended up going to a nightclub. And, and that has become the most incredible relationship where now there's a, a nightclub on 21st called the El Flamingo. And we have a home there. And it is a theater, and we now run the donkey show on the weekends. We have a new show, which we run every Thursday night once a week. It's a completely non-traditional model. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, once a week, uh, which is, you know, a very unorthodox way of running things. Um, a lot of cast, 15 actors, um, equity, non-equity mix, because it's a nightclub, it's a non-jurisdictional location, it's an open environment, it's a more like cabaret. Um, and the nightclub owner is basically giving us the space because it's a nightclub. He doesn't do anything during the day. It has a sprung look floor, a sound system, uh, you know, lights that are there. And, and, you know, we have the keys to the club and we rehearse there when we want to develop shows and put in new shows. And, and for me, that 
is so much more liberating. And it's it's not only the vacation and the um, the unorthodox environment of it, but it's also the opportunity to, to be free there. It's it's something about that environment where you're 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 really not dealing with existing um, rules. And it also relates back to uh, that how that impacts your work and how you create your work. And we've been running a show, which is called The Karaoke Show. It's an adaptation of Comedy Era set in Karaoke Bar. And we've been developing it since last fall, performing it once a week, developing it in front of audiences, changing it. And I've been in the other situation where you get a workshop and you do it and you've got your two weeks and then you develop a show and then nothing happens for a year. And, you wait. and the idea of putting something in front of an audience and getting that actual feedback and being able to change things and learn and grow from your audience. I just, I can't say enough how it fuels me to actually make that contact and um, be able to, to react and put that immediately back into your work. Um, well, I want to rip off of that a little bit and, and turn to our artistic directors, uh, Neil and Scott and Tisa. Um, in, in terms of that, if Diane was talking about how she something started and, and, and grew out a little space at the downtown and, and is now in a non-conventional space, but Neil, you have a you have a theater in TC, you do two space that has overhead, you have salaries, and Scott, you were talking the other day that you, on Friday night, that you're now being getting one. You have been resisting it, but you're not getting one. How do you three, as artistic directors, um, how, do you, how, how do you keep your, this is probably a very local question, so I apologize. I don't know if there's an easy answer. How do you keep your artistic vision alive when you have all these economic, not only have all, a, all these economic pressures on you, salaries, rents, mortgages maybe, and at the same time, all this competition from multimedia, other media sources, television, internet, movies, film, and the audience being shifted, shifting away, well, I guess they're not. We just heard Jenny say that the audiences are there. Um, so it's a matter of reaching. So how do you three run an organization with all these economic imperatives must be weighing very heavily on your shoulders? Well, there's no question the challenges and expectations for institutions is quite different than for an individual artist. And I think as the, the oldest one, uh, how we keep it fresh is, is, is this balance. This, we have programming not only main stage productions that we're very, very selective about choosing because simply it costs way too much. To spend $150,000 on a production, you're going to have to really be rather selective. But then we also have the theater for youth, and then we have developmental, um, the new plays where we can use new directors, where we can uh, put it into either one day uh, rehearsal, maybe a week. So there are different levels. And I think it's this keeping this kind of diversity that allows us to remain fresh. Because there's absolutely no question. In the early years, when I started, um, I had no idea really what me it meant to be an artistic producing director. But the bottom line is, when there's a, a deficit, uh, the first person not compensated is me. So that, hopefully, we've gotten beyond that now. We've gotten a little smarter, a little older, a little wiser. But um, there's no question that it has to be the artistic drive and the crispness and the wonders 
of, of the artistic process. Otherwise, why are we doing this? And I think so, so just to go back to the how, the what now and how do we do this, is that, well, we know a little bit better, so we try to keep things diversified and balanced. Don't incur a deficit. Uh, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <coughs> uh, just first, I want to say, I think a, a lot of the stuff that's coming up is incredibly valuable. Everything that's being said. Um, I don't have a short answer to the question. I think the short answer is listen to the artists and listen to the community. That's the most difficult thing. You don't get a lot of sleep because what you're doing is, on the one hand, you're looking at, you're staring down a $300,000 deficit, and you're trying to run a school, and you're trying to run programs for young writers and young directors, and you're trying to put up four plays a year that you believe in, and that you hope speak the truth according to you and your community of artists, and you're running children's theater, and you're doing outreach to different communities in different ways, and you're still staring at that $300,000 deficit. And what you're doing is desperately trying to do the art that you believe in. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm angered by the times in which we, we live, as I think a lot of people are, because there's so much lying you look at the TV and you just think there's a lot of lying going on. And one of the reasons I came went into the theater was to hopefully succeed in telling the truth, create a forum where a community of people, whether they're young or established, whatever color they are, to speak the truth. And then you look at all this business talk and you're going, and then you think about survival, which frankly is because you get the end of two years, maybe with a $300,000 deficit, you're done. It's over. You should close the doors. So, I guess for me, on the artistic side versus the institutional, is don't make artistic choices based on business and institutional needs. Don't let that pendulum push too far over, because you will also die. Um, but at the same time, you you have to stay married somehow to the truth of what you believe in and still run a good business. And, and that's the position that I find myself, and I haven't solved it, and I'm conflicted about it all the time, but, uh, but you try to move on. You try to, to still, I mean, it's like, it's, it's like Diane was saying, yeah, why not run the show? And then you go, when equity requires, we've got to pay the actors. And if the actors get together and they go to equity and they say we want to relinquish our salaries, equity says, no, you can't. I mean, then we're like, how, do, how are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? We want to do that. And, and maybe that's a problem inherently with the institutional system and maybe unions, and that's another discussion. But, so it's a big balancing act. But, but I guess the short answer is uh, listen to the artists, listen to the community, and try to stay true to what you believe in. Can I just jump in here just because of making a distinction, a distinction? As a director, when I work at an institution, a not-for-profit, a regional theater, what frustrates me is that I'm not part of the budget. I, I might be a maverick director, but I want to know how the money is being spent because I think I can help, and I can help. Mm. And this is mentality, like, don't show the director's budget. Amen. You know, that's why I prefer to do my own 
Jones because I will control the money and I will make sure we are not spending money irresponsibly. You know, when I find out you spent $1,000 on that, cut that. I'd much rather have the money here. And I think actually, you know, and maybe it comes from um, what Neil was saying, my generation, we never, I, I never grew up in my professional career in, in the grant age. It was always like, you know, you've got to get the butts in the seats. You're always like counting the, you get the box of the cardboard box with the money and you're counting it and you're figuring out how you're going to make the next show. So maybe, you know, but maybe this is the mentality of some of the up-and-coming directors, and I would just encourage institutions to use that, because I think we can be very helpful in terms of how money is spent, and I think that, that can, so maybe there's a, you know, maybe I'm just going to say, oh, God, don't, don't let them sit in on those production meetings or budget meetings, but I, I do think that we can be useful, and we can help shape how the money is spent, and maybe cut the budget, you know, it always drives me crazy when, a budget is given to a designer, and it's a flat sum. Could they spend less? In my, whenever I do my shows, I'm like, figure out how much money you need to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell them you have fifteen thousand dollars, so that then all of a sudden, oh, I've got to buy that, and I don't like it. Well, that's just X that item off my budget, and I'm feeding out the budget. No, you tell me. You, I want you to be able to return it. Keep the label on it. I mean, this mentality. You know, it's, it's so so because it drives me crazy. Because we're all working for so little money. You know, a hundred dollars is a big deal. You know, I, I think of the not-for-profit business. So so for me, the the idea that the artistic side, you know, the director. I, you know, in, in my company, we we you know our actors shop their own clothes. You know, they they costume themselves sometimes, and they're scrap. You know, we give them a little you know something, and they come in and they show us, and it's. I mean, it's, it's a way of, I don't know. I mean, it may not dollar value add to a lot, but I, I think it could somehow. It's, it's interesting because I just, it's one of the things I've gotten in the last three days from hearing so many wonderful people speak is all of this is Oprah with all these little light bulb moments. And just listening to you now, Diane, too, I think, God, you know, producers trust the director with the entire production, but they won't trust you to spend a dollar. Um, which is more important, you know? I, I'd like to address that for a minute because um, having produced so many shows over the past, you know, several years, and one thing I want to say also is that most not-for-profit institutions don't pay a dollar for their rent. I just want to say they pay a dollar for their rent. But no, truth, no, truth be told, that like, yeah. like it, it takes me a very, very long time to raise the huge amount of money that we. I, I know Neil. Yeah. to pay our rent. Yeah. It's like, it's gigantic for a not-for-profit institution just to raise the money. And I, I also want to say uh, that, like, um, like, as far as the budgets go and things like that, like, our budgets are no are much bigger than $150,000 a show. We haven't been able to afford to do a $150,000 show in a very, very long time because of the limitations that are put upon us by the unions and the state fans and all the people that we have to pay all the time. Our budgets are over $200,000 a show that are like one set, seven character play. So I just want to say that on the reality level, um, that's kind of, and the new group is a, a baby company in the scheme. I mean, the, the Atlantic has been around a lot longer than the new group. They're, they have much more money than we do even. So it's like, so I, I actually know the kind of financial issues. I have found, listen, I would love you to come work on my theater all the time, but I have found in truth that most people are irresponsible. Because I show people budgets. 
I, I let people in on what we're doing. You know, I, I totally work. I believe in everybody being a part of everything because to me, nobody's really working for money and it's all an experience. And I love everybody to kind of be happy and be on the same page. But I have found mostly that people are irresponsible to, to our budgets. As a director myself, you know, I mean, I actually am trying to be extra responsible if I direct out of my own place because I know how it feels to be on the other end and have to come up with that extra money. And, and how somebody will tell me, oh yeah, we'll do that, oh sure, let's cut this, let's move this, let's move this, but then there's another thing that happens. So I have found, in general, in the budget area, we're never on budget, ever. We're always over budget because of a director's decision. A director fighting me about having something and finally I just say, okay, and then I get down there and try to get the money, or a designer or something like that. But I, so I, I haven't had that experience as a producer. I wish more people were like you and very responsible, but I find when people tell me they're going to be responsible, in the end, I would say 75% of the time, and I direct one or two of my three productions a year, you know, but my, that's my work, you know, uh, and, and usually job in one, that, that when I job with people that it, the budget goes crazy over. And only I, when I work at my theater, so so am comfortable in working within my own budget range. What is a different mentality? You know, I don't really know. I think that there are some directors who, well, this might sound, you know, whatever, but there are some directors who are coming from a purer place of their art and have, like, I started my organization so I could do my work. You know what I mean? Like, you started your organization so you could do your work, you know? Um, and there is that sort of kind of drive about the work and, and the kind of blood and guts that it takes to start an organization, especially in the past 10 years, you know, uh, in, in this town, to actually, you know, get it going or get some sort of funding to make, to make it happen. And obviously, it's all based on the work. And it's based on how many people are coming to the shows, the kind of press that we get and the marketing, that, you know, all of the things that are, you know, that, that in the 70s and 80s, might have seen, like I have been faced with since I've started a theater. You know, I have had no choice if I wanted to do my work, but to enter that sort of realm of how am I going to get money to advertise in the New York Times? You know what I mean? How am I, because that's really all that sells tickets for us. You know, so we advertise in the New York Times, which is astronomical. It's, it's huge. I mean, so the, so the budgets that are put on, on these productions, so anyway, I, I have to say that, that it would be wonderful. Like, I'm hoping that what all you get out of this is that as directors, that you will be responsible to your budgets because most directors are irresponsible to their budgets, and you do end up having to go into debt as a result of it because, I'm sorry, because ultimately it's a 50-50 chance as to whether the play is going to be attended. You know, I've, had, I've produced plays that I thought were going to move to Broadway that have flopped. I've produced plays I thought were that have been, you know, colossal for us. So you just never really know how it's going to fall out because it all depends, unfortunately, on the New York Times in the level of theater that we're in or the amount of money that we can put into the New York Times to advertise. It's that a very, very crazy, it's it's a crazy so thing. It's so interesting to hear Scott's perspective because I think this panel is called What Now and, and how, do, how Do the younger, uh, the Next Generation of Artistic Writers or Directors um, Perhaps Take Over and uh, uh, and it is so interesting because you are so aware, you have such a business acumen, and you're so aware of the finances. Um, and I think that for, I think we mustn't lose perspective, however, that the values, we are, that it's different values and different priorities that drive us. We were in St. Clements for 15 years, where um, New Group is now. And real estate, I agree with you, real estate is, one of the reasons we left and moved up to the uh, West 86th Street to a wonderful church space called the West End Theater, or one of three uh, groups in residence, 
is because of this real estate factor. Pan Asian is an ensemble-driven um, artist uh, company, and I just did not want to let real estate capsize us. So now I'm able to pay everybody, all the artists more, but I'm in a more modest um, facility uh, out of Times Square, and I'm so happy to be out of Times Square. So, but going back to this, what are what burdens are we putting on the next generation of artistic directors and directors? And I think it is, again, I, I'm, I think that we have to, in a way, go back to what drives us to, to want to do the kind of work that, that is going to, to, to that why is it that we want to do the work that we do? And I think we have to keep that in mind, along with this wonderful what a smart, this business um, uh, smart. One thing we didn't talk about is partnering, perhaps now we, I think that uh, partnering with not only other companies, international artists, um, but that, te- what about television and, and, and film? I mean, I think well, you, we you're very, uh, uh, both of you are very cognizant and if anything, um, I think are receptive to, to overtures. We, yeah, we, we've, uh, we've partnered with the Women's Project and the Vineyard and Manhattan Theater Club in the past to get our work done in times of trouble, you know? Um, and, uh, and so that's always been a wonderful experience having somebody, you know, to kind of work with in times of trouble. It's nice to partner with another artistic director when, you know, you need extra money and you want you both believe in a, a work so enough to put your budgets behind it. So that's always been really helpful to us. And, and we, we partner sometimes with, um, you know, a commercial theater producer will give us, because we don't really have the money to do our shows. We have to raise the money every year to do our shows. We are not funded to do the, to do the work on the level that we're forced to do the work. And and just to, to talk about the real estate, we were at St. Clemens. We just did another play at St. Clemens. We left St. Clemens because it was too expensive. And our history was that we were in a little space on 42nd Street and got kicked out. Then we moved to another little space on 42nd Street and got kicked out. And finally we took up on Theater Row, the old Theater Row, and then they knocked all that down and kicked us out. And then we went to St. Clements, which is really not the proper space for, for New Group and the kind of work, the intimate ensemble work that we do. It's not really, it wasn't the greatest space for us, but we kind of made do. You know, we put as much money as we possibly could into kind of making it presentable for the public, <laughs> which was, which was, uh, which was uh, good for both of the institutions, St. Clements and the New Group. And then now we're just kind of finally going to take over, um, you know, our own space. and. Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a constant struggle, it's a constant battlefield. And, and yes, we receive money, we have to raise our money for our shows. That's another thing. We have to raise per show X amount of dollars in order to produce them. That we are not funded enough by the government or the city or foundations or anybody in order to realize a three-play season. And, but we, have, we pay all of our artists as well. Yes? I know Clinton wanted to say something before he does, but you want I did want to hear from Neil, uh, based on what Tisa was just talking about, the collaborations. And what about collaborations with film or television or other collaborations? Uh, that they can be good and they can be very tricky. Some of them, depending on the group, depending on the deal. I mean, a lot of it's about money, and, and a lot of it, the most important part is, are you staying to your mission? And I say this to enhancement people all the time. I say, you can want to give us, you've got the rights to this show that we want to do, great. You, you're willing to give us, I don't know, 25 grand, 75 grand, high end, 150 grand to do it, fine. 
you just can't tap me on the shoulder and tell me how you want it done. Yeah, hands off. We because, do that too. Because the mission, the idea is you give it to the theater, to, to the theater's going to do it. And, and why would they do that is the other part of the question. The reason they would do that is because if they put it up in a commercial house, it would probably cost them upwards of half a million dollars, or if they put it on Broadway, it would cost them more than that. So they're giving you money because they believe in this play, they believe in this artist, and they want to see it done. If it's successful, they can lift it and move it, and they won't expense one of those sums that I just talked about. With film, I mean, it, it's always tricky, and, and it's all about the deal. You just don't want to compromise what you're doing. Um, so yes, there's a lot of possibilities. You just don't want to end up spending all your time working for a film company. You can get money from a film company. Probably they want product. They want scripts. So you'll cut a first look deal. Uh, they'll give you $50,000. You'll read a lot of, you'll say to playwrights, any film scripts, they're going to read them and they're going to shuffle to a film company. That that has been my experience with a bunch of theater companies around the country and in New York that film deals. Some of them are making films, some of them aren't. There's, there's a, long, a lot of information there. But on the other side, yes, there's a lot of money out there if you cut the right deal. And if you cut the right collaboration, it can be very exciting. Maybe you do a play in London and they pay for all the costs in London, and that's great. The actors get to go to London and we pay for all the costs in New York. It's exciting for the artists. Atlantic doesn't make any money on it, but we go to London. That's it. It's not about the money. It's hopefully about the artists. And the money doesn't go to the theater. The money goes to the artists or the production. It doesn't go into anybody's pockets. Whatever money we raise goes always into the production or to pay a writer or to pay a director because somebody has interest in their work. And so I always say, well, hell, Give the you know give them a few thousand dollars you know and then you know if, the, if you and the writer hit it off because ultimately the, that producer is the person who's going to have to work with the writer or the director to take it to to the next level and most of the time I'd say that we do it it does you know it doesn't end up moving commercially or end up and the people end up losing their money anyway so um, and, you know but but and it's it's a, a wonderful thing for us to, be able to have the money to, be able to do the to do the work as an individual artist I'd say that that model of collaborations and partnerships has been I just directed a dance theater workshop. Couldn't, it's called Blood Cherries. Could not have been put up if the New World Theater of Amherst hadn't also participated in co-producing it. Um, <coughs> we did a community-based production um, adaptation of The Good Woman of Szechuan. We wanted to adapt it to the city of New Haven. Long Wharf ended up getting involved and putting it on their main stage. It was a similar community-based project in, in D.C. with the Rita stage. So those are projects that in a sense, we would have done anyway, but finding a like-minded, you know, co-producing, um, and, and also a project that I developed with New Dramatists, um, The Trials of Monica Lewinsky, based on her grand jury testimony. HBO got involved in bringing that to the U.S. Comedy Arts Festival, which wasn't originally, uh, you know, but but you try to, to pull these partners together. And I just, because I know there are a lot of self-directed individual artists who aren't all, only responsible for big theaters out there, and I would just encourage you to be thinking about your audience and who you're trying to reach and what your mission is and trying to put this work up and really think creatively about who the different partners are that you can bring in. Um, some of my creative work has been you know, co-sponsored by the Center for Documentary Studies. An unlikely fit, they never produced theater before, but they have helped with a consortium of other, other groups in sort of getting work out there. So um, I think there is, in terms of the creative problem, you know, problem solving, there's really a lot more than we can do in pulling two different partners and putting it together on the level of the individual artists. So we can work out there. Well, I'm less than we're going to throw it to Clinton anyway. Now, 
Okay. Uh, well, I want you to answer what you want to say, but I also, since we're through it, I want to also raise the issue of what two issues of diversity, gender, and age play uh, in all this scenario. That's something we've been talking a little bit, talking a little bit about throughout the course of the weekend, but we knew that this was going to be the session that we really wanted to talk about that, since as Tisa said, this is about the rising artistic leadership. I do think the rising artistic leadership is found, going to be found in the foundation right now. A lot of our colleagues are going to come out of the foundation, the media artistic directors and the leading directors of the next five years. So what issues are you guys facing and what, in a positive way, and Before we go there, I just wanted to make one uh, comment to a phrase that you used, Scott, and uh, when you were talking about um, directors going over budget. <laughs> and um, well, I agree with you that uh, I always like to be shown what the budget is, and it is my job to either bring the show in at budget or preferably under budget. Well, Most of the shows. <laughs> shows that I've done have always been under budget. That's wonderful. That's amazing. But you but use I, the phrase um, artistic purity. Right. And I, I bristled. Oh, sorry. No, no, on, no, only because sometimes that phrase is used by directors to get what they want. Yeah. Not necessarily what the production needs, but what they want. And it's justified with that phrase, a phrase is similar to it. So in terms of what next, one of the important things for what's next uh, with directors and future artistic directors is a keener sense of fiscal responsibility. It is vital to the survival of the art. Um, I can't say that enough. Um, Many, many theaters have come to the brink because of fiscal irresponsibility. We've been through a, a, a phase where if the greater proportion of the theater's budget was not going to the two artistic leaders, artistic and managerial leaders, the rest of the production budget, or the, the theater's budget, was really going into production into spectacle, and not necessarily into the artist's pockets. And that has always been troubling for me, but that's probably a, uh, for an entirely different panel of discussion. <laughs> In terms of issues of diversity, um, it's, I've been, for too long, I think, been wearing the, the diversity cloak and mantle, because I always, I've never um, bit my tongue in terms of those issues. And many times it's, um, I've not been employed because of it, because of my honesty, uh, my directness. Oftentimes it's been read as being arrogant, as being angry as well. But when we deal with issues of diversity, again, it gets back to honesty and what we really want our theaters It's a question that we continually need to ask ourselves as we look at 
statistics in the department of any department, and you look at the browning, as the term is now, the browning of America, the artistic, uh, the potential, the audiences and the potential audiences within our communities is changing, sometimes subtly, oftentimes very drastically. And the theater companies realize that too late. The, we used to call it the Blue Rinse crowd, the Wednesday matinee crowd, and that for a large extent, to a large extent, has been the backbone of the support of the theater. And those theater companies that I have witnessed over the years that have seen and addressed honestly the changes and, and really substantively and systemically decided to make a change in how they were approaching their art, what they were presenting on their stages, and to whom that specific target audience was and would be, those are the healthier companies across the board within this country. There are a number of questions that can be asked. One is to look at the types of plays that you are, you are, um, are programming, the types of artists you are hiring, not only in terms of ethnic diversity, and we really do need to, and we still need to expand the dialogue and the discussion and our view. The issues of gender are vitally important. The issue of physical capabilities and, and, and the disabled community is sometimes never brought into the discussion or at the very end of the discussion. Pardon? We did it. No, gender issues. Gender issues. I, I get so frustrated in traveling around the country and talking to young female artists of any ethnicity who still feel locked out, that there is no place for them within institutions, within their communities, and nationally. I've, I've got the point now, sometimes I've even turned down jobs saying, no, I, I cannot, I don't want this place here. Hi, this, this woman to do it, because she needs the job more than I do, and you need to know who this voice is. And so sometimes it, 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 it becomes a question of sharing. I believe that we all will ultimately get the things that, that are destined for us, the jobs, etc. And too often, so much of our time is spent consciously and unconsciously keeping, according to play, the undesired elements from having seats at the table to placing them in the other room or outside of the organization as well. And as I look at the demise of theaters historically, those theaters that have taken the big fall are those theaters that saw too late the writing on the wall in terms of issues of diversity. We need to look at the communities in which we're in or in which we want to work because 
the money is there, and it's a quiet kind of money. It's a new money. It's a money of different kinds of coalitions of the small businesses that um, can support our art in many new and interesting ways. I'll give you one quick little anecdote. Back in the 70s, when I was doing a lot of stage managing of shows that were running around the country, there's a press agent by the name of Irene Gandhi. I don't know if any of you know her, but to know Irene, to meet Irene, is an experience in itself. Uh, she's wonderfully outspoken. For her time during the 70s, very daring. And she was called on by many producers to keep shows that were on the road running. She would come see the show, come to the specific city, and the first thing she would do would, find, would ask them, what audience is missing? Who do you want in these seats? And the producers would invariably say, anybody who's going to pay, the pay for the tickets? She said, okay, well, we'll start this way. And the first thing she would do, and this is, this is very strange, but this is just one marketing ploy, and it worked. She would take window cards and go to all, in the, in the black community and all communities, go to the corner stores, and the liquor stores, the wine stores. And she would put a, put a card there, give them two tickets, and word was immediately in the community. And the next step, and this was the controversial one, she would go and meet all the prostitutes. <laughs> give the prostitutes comp tickets. <laughs> And you would have these nights where, pardon? Yes, but, the, but all of a sudden the word got out in another way, and the producers were are, were amazed that one night. Oh yes, we had the prostitutes that night, but then the following night and nights after that, the people from the suburbs were coming. <laughs> And it was like, wait a minute, what is happening here? <laughs> and so it was, it, it was a very interesting way of promotion that worked in, in all of its oddity. Um, but it is, it is looking at different ways of production. And, and before I, one last thing, one other thing I'll say, as I mentioned education in terms of finding those new venues. Um, in which to work and also in which to in which to collaborate. Re envision yourselves as directors, as director teachers, director scholars. The amount the handwriting foundations told us fifteen years ago. All of them printed within their quarterly and final reports that their money was going into communities, into medicine, specifically AIDS research, and into education. They told us that minimum 15 years ago. So it was no surprise to me when the money for the arts, in a sense, diminished and was appearing in other places. Now, we as artists, too many of us, 
are coming into that educational arena where much of the money is late because now foundations are moving on to some, some, some other places in a, in a larger global community. But in re-envisioning yourselves as theaters, art director scholars and artists, you can create programs for yourselves in, in alliance with many colleges and universities who would be dying to have you as resident artists, that you can take your work for long, short and long-term development. And you would be amazed, particularly with the way many colleges and universities are structured within their boards of trustees, if they have the committee, committee structure, to find out who those board members are that focus on arts and literature, or arts and, arts and letters. And you'd be amazed at the deep pockets that you can find who are outside of the, who are a part of the corporate world, but also a part of the academic world, and want to produce theater and art under the umbrella of the academy that can then transfer to the legitimate, the legitimate theater. So it's another kind of model that you can put yourself in and possibly find them for. I, I could listen to this thing forever. Um, but I know the last time we turned up, the, the last session we turned up the lights were a million hands in the air. Um, I'm suspecting they're going to be again now. So I'd like to throw it, feel free anybody to jump in and speak up any time. But I want, it's important that you guys get to ask the questions you want to ask. So, is Jeff up in the light room? I don't see anybody up there. Well, just shout out. I see Brian and your hand going up. Yeah. Q&A. Saturday, we had a 
party after the show where people could stay, and you adjust your performance schedule. I mean, the, 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 the good news is we can do that in this venue. Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of theaters so in, are... In the theater, so why do you have to start at 8 o'clock or 7.30? 10.30? At midnight? And, and to really speak to the issues and, and make the theater experience really 
are not done. Audiences know, in a specific community, knows when it's being used as well as when it's being abused. So there's a, so with that choice, it again goes back to are you doing it just for this one moment or is, or is this going to be something that is going to be systemic and a part of your overall artistic vision? Because if you do it once, Everyone is, is joyous, and then they wait again next year or don't see it as, a, as part of the thread and fabric of your organization, and there's a greater sense of betrayal, and you'll never get that audience. Um, the challenge of marketing um, has come up a lot. Um, I just wonder, how do you guys solve this problem? Clearly, the New York Times is a big part of getting people in. I mean, is, I, I'm keen on art about how do you bring in main people in every show you do? What, what, how, how do you solve these problems? Uh, well, we're already answering first of all. Everything that everybody's been saying, whether it's email, whether it's coming across the dudes, whether it's getting... <laughs> I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's not bullshit. It's, it's the fact. You've got to get out into the community. You've got to let people know what you're doing. And you've got to do work that they want to <coughs> frankly. If you want to reach a community like you're talking about, you know, and it's part of your mission, then do it and make sure when they come to the theater that the work you're putting on is damn good. Because they'll probably come back, I think. Um, marketing that sort of commercial side of it, I don't know. It's, it's the, yeah, we have to put ABCs in the New York Times, which are far too expensive. So that anybody wants to see the show, where are they going to know? Well, they hopefully they'll know from the listing, but if, if they only read the Times, they've got to see it there. So we spent that on what it is. The bottom line is the play itself, yeah. the event itself. Because if you don't have that, and it isn't really substantive, you don't really have anything to market. Once the audience gets there and says, oh, this is a piece of fluff. I, why did I spend my time and money? Then the word, the, the wrong word is on the street. So that's and that, that what, what work, I mean, what do you do with things work? Mailings? We rely heavily on mailings. And I just think they were to give an interesting piece that'll sit in somebody's kitchen for a little while. And mm -hmm. look at it, they'll think about it, they're going to read it. 
Whereas if you have a post, some people like sniping the posters around town. You know, maybe that works. It's just where you want to spend the money. The minimum we spend per <coughs> just so you know, in marketing is anywhere from fifteen to thirty-five thousand dollars per show. Depending knowing on the your audience, knowing your target audience, who you're focused, being creative about knowing what new possible audiences to target your play to, how you communicate it to them. It is really very effective. I mean, we're working with a consultant now through Art New York, as a matter of fact, and I mean, again, just the infinite possibilities of legacy code that'll speak to so many different co communities that we, Pan-Asian, have used generally not. We've been before a little bit narrow to certain Asian-specific um, communities. We're really going beyond that. So being creative about that, all the professions, the legal professions, the scientific professions, that kind of thing. Radio. The block associations. We, oh, yeah. we do something. Um, we do something at both our shows at, at Flamingo, which again we are able to do because it's not a traditional venue. You don't have a number of seats, and I'm just always proponent to fill the house, and the club can hold up to 700 people. It can also hold 200 and more full. So we have a flexibility in terms of um, seats. We're not. We're not. I'm not dealing with selling seats. I'm just dealing with getting buyers. So we have a thing called the VIP policy. You come and see the show, you pay, you like it, you sign up on a VIP list, you become a VIP of the show. You are allowed to come back to the show for free anytime as long as you bring a paying friend. And you get on a list, you start to feel part of the event, you feel part, and then you get your audience being your little marketing people. And they start getting the word out. And I, I have to say, again, it's about your audience. You're if you are connecting with your audience, if your, your event is connecting, you know, my, my one dream and wish is to get over this New York Times thing. It is just murder. It is insanity. That's what film and TV have over us. A film can get a bad review. People still go and see it. I don't understand why. Is it the visibility so of the impact of the New York Times, you simply cannot underestimate I know. I agree know, with you about that. I just that. feel like, you know, I, my, uh, Michelle, I don't want it reviewed. I want to get to a point where we can have shows and have them not reviewed, and they can survive, and they can find audience, and they can continue to operate and find other ways of getting out, because this, it's, it's, it's murder. It's like assassination with the New York Times. And half the time, the critic is not really speaking for the audience. So then they write a great review, a theater thinks, oh, we got the great review, they invest, and then the audience doesn't come, and then you're spending, you know, you, you, you lose your money. I mean, it's, it's, it's how to really, you know, keep your cost down, develop work, which is so precarious, figure out which one is really connecting, and then make an investment. Then, you know, but it's, it's just so difficult that you have to spend, and you have to, I mean, I agree, you have to, you can eat, you have to spend. But I mean, Donkey Show, we pulled our eyes in the New York Times because our audience was not the New York Times. We were spending $7,000 with them this big in the New York Times, not the ABCs. And, you know, we did an analysis, and it wasn't our audience. So we just stopped spending that. We don't advertise in the York Times. You look at, say, the, um, the, what is called now the urban circuit plays, that play usually the African American subject matter with a musical yeah. como, com component, but usually play at the Beacon and other other uh, not uh, somewhat non-traditional theater spaces. Those plays nationally gross more than four million dollars a year. Their primary marketing <coughs> tools 
word of mouth, they pay for the first performance. Billboards and posters around. Yes, liquor stores and radio. Radio. And they come by the bus loads. Bus loads. At the last, at the last panel, the salaries of department heads in institutional theaters was blasted. Um, and I would like to ask the three artistic directors if you feel that if <laughs> <laughs> you feel the executive directors of development directors or, or staff in general are overpaid or paid according to what they deserve in your institutions or institutions that you're familiar with? Of my institution, uh, we are grossly underpaid according to the, uh, given the, the, the average norm. However, it is what we can afford within the company. It is balanced. There's a this percentage of seniority, there's uh, um, actually, I, I think, uh, most valued person is our communications director right now, so we fan. So she, but um, all of it is a kind of a, a balance. I think the earlier uh, conversation panel talked about a lot of the mega organizations where those artistic directors who have been there for a long time are, are rather well compensated in many, many, many ways. So we, we, we do, we give vacation, we do fringes, we have health benefits. So, the, I mean, all of that is a part of the package. We have a very nice, wonderful new office at the 520 Art New York Stasis, which is another bonus because they, we, we love working there. So having, having some of those benefits, I think, helps to augment the package of the, the, low, the salary not being as high as Gordon Davidson's. We're, we're underpaid. But we're just under the norm for our size <coughs> relative to budget. The norm is relative to budget. Oh. You're talking about, are you a $1 million organization, are you a $18 million organization, are you a $100,000 organization? And what you would, and also, I think, the question is, I've been there in 11 years, and I have a kid now, so there's a lot of question of, I mean, I make enough to get by, I have no savings, I have no savings. So, so really, it's, it's those questions that you start trying to deal with, but I, yeah, I make enough to, to live and, and one of the things well, we're trying to pay the artists now, hopefully enough to live, and that's really difficult. Um, but relative, no, we're not going to pay enough money. I think. And maybe some of these other people are getting overpaid. Sure, it's uh, yeah, it's all the timing, you know. What are you yeah. going to do? They built their theaters in the time where people were throwing tons of money at them. You know, and like what their life, and their lifestyles become what their lifestyles are, and their theaters become what their theaters are. And as much as we might, you know, be jealous or resentful or whatever feelings that we have toward those organizations that did what they did, but they did it, you know, and that's a wonderful thing. And they employ a lot of artists, and you know, on levels where people can make a living, you know, where people work, people can make money. I mean, it's a very, very, you know, kind of complicated thing. And, you know, it's just the way it's all, a lot of it is in the timing, I think, of like how, you know, what, what the world was like when certain organizations started and grew. And but the issue, the issue really is the percentage 
looking at the overall budget, the percentage of, of say, the artistic or the managing director's salary relative to the percentage of that budget that the artist gets paid. And those percentages, there's such a great disparity. How did that happen, though, in the in the formation of those organizations? Like how? I mean, we know what organizations we're talking about, like mm -hmm. the Roundabout, the Manhattan mm -hmm. Theater Club, the Lincoln Center, mm -hmm. where people are making, you know, kind of extravagant-ish in seeing the salary. How did that happen? You're in that world. The quick history. Um, is we, have, we have 90 seconds. Okay, the quick, is, the quick history is how they, is with the, the way that those institutions were grandfathered, they were the first institutions that were, were started by the NEA back in the, started by the government back in the 50s when they sent those artistic directors, but they weren't artistic directors then, to Europe to look at those theaters, came back to the United States, we need to have the same kind of thing. They weren't state supported, they didn't have state funds then. And then over the period of time, from the very beginning of the funding process, those leaders were the ones who were on the panels initially. And so the guidelines that were written were written by those voices in the room. So I wanna thank Thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union, celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.